John 1, 19 through 27. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. Good morning. Thank you for that excellent reading of God's Word. Let's turn again in the Scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Actually, the end of chapter 3, first of all. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. It's good to be back with you all again. And uh, we look forward to the outreach this afternoon. The I know there was alliteration there, but the sunset something. But anyway... I look forward to it, whatever it's called, and for the time of fellowship with you all, as well as for the outreach aspect of it. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore, since we have this ministry... As we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ, our the Lord. Excuse me, let me try that again, verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This morning we want to look at him. And that is why I had our brother read to us that passage of scripture from John 1. Because John the Baptist understood his role. He understood his ministry, his work for the Lord. It was to point others to Christ. In fact, when you observe him... Just about every time you see John the Baptist, he's pointing other people to the Lord Jesus. Later in that same chapter, John chapter 1, 
He's going to say in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The last thing we read of him in the Gospel of John is in chapter 3 when some of his disciples come and they say, Look, that, that man you spoke about by the Jordan River, he's baptizing more people than you are. And he says of him, He must increase, but I must decrease. He says some other things there too, but that's my favorite part of what he says. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, we live in a self-obsessed world. And through technology, there's never been a time in the world's history when you can be more dedicated to yourself than right now. Now, man throughout history has found that self is a big enemy, okay? Our three enemies, according to 1 John chapter 2, are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world and the devil are external, but the flesh is internal. Paul would speak about it in Romans 7 and say, in my flesh dwells no good thing. Or in Galatians 5, where he would say, the flesh lusts against the spirit, uh, sorry, wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So there's this fight where we have a traitor within, something within us that responds to sin, that is attracted by things that tempt us, that looks at the baubles and trinkets of this world and is even willing to indulge in it and in some cases to trade away eternity for a few temporal things which pass away so rapidly and which no one can take out of this world. It's sad, really, isn't it? But John understood his role. When they came and said, who are you? Are you the prophet that is to come, the one that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy, saying the Lord would send unto you a prophet like unto me, and him you will hear? Are you that messianic prophet, that great one to come? And John said, no, I'm not him. Are you one of the other prophets? No. Are you the Christ? No. Well, who are you then? I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. I don't watch these competitive reality shows, but I do see their advertisements occasionally when I'm unfortunate enough to have to watch a football game live, okay? Better when you can DVR it and you can skip a lot of junk and noise. But once in a while, you know, I see they have these shows on like The Masked Singer, okay? Now, I've heard a few singers, I'd rather have The Muzzled Singer, but they, they have this show, The Masked Singer. I've never seen it, but I think the gist of it by the commercials is that you hear this person sing, but you can't see what they look like. And it's usually, I think, somebody famous, but like a celebrity of some sort. So the idea is, you just focus on the voice and you're not prejudiced by other things this celebrity has done or, or something like that. Well, you know, we can hear a voice and we can still think really well of the person that is singing. You hear the voice of Luciano Pavarotti, for example, and whether you like opera or not, his voice is singular. You don't mistake him for Placido Domingo. You don't mistaken for Jose Carreras or for Juan Diego Flores or for Enrico Caruso or any other tenor that's been, yes, I like opera, okay? I'm just, uh, <laughs> just confessed it before you all. Confess your faults, the Bible says. So there you are. You know, he has this distinct voice. His voice identifies him. But the lovely thing about the Bible and John's ministry is that when he describes himself as a voice, 
It's not the sonorous quality of the voice. It's not the pitch or the tone that is emanating from that voice. It's not the skill with which that voice is employed. The great Shakespearean actor David Garrick of the 18th century said about the preacher George Whitfield, I would give a fortune to be able to say the word Mesopotamia the way Whitfield says it. Because Whitfield could galvanize you with his eloquence, with his oratory, with the magnificent language and verbiage that he used. But when we talk about John, it is not extensive vocabulary. It is not poetic quatrains that he's bringing together. John is issuing content. It's not what the voice is in itself, but it is what the voice is saying. What does the voice say? The voice says, behold the Lamb of God. What is it to behold something or someone? Well, it's to look at it, to look at it carefully. Behold the Lamb of God. And John was always pointing people away from himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I say again, we live in a time when we need to get back to that so much because even in the church, it's perilously easy to look to ourselves. And a lot of people are very introspective and and very interested in looking to themselves. Well, no doubt we have to examine ourselves, the scripture says. But our examination is always to be done in the way that 2 Corinthians 3 described it, by looking as if we were looking into a mirror and seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. We're examining ourselves, not saying, oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror. I get better looking each day. What, were you expecting Keats? I mean, (laughs) sorry. Anyway, a boy from Birdsboro, we have both types of music, country and western, you know. But anyway, that's how the world would say it. Look at yourself. Examine yourself. Learning to love yourself, that's the greatest love of all, another poetess of the 1980s said. But the Bible says no. If you just look at yourself in yourself, that's a recipe for disaster. Because either you're going to become haughty and proud and think, I am all that, you know? Like Absalom, who had the Fabio hair. Ah, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. You know, I've got the flowing locks and all this. And look at him from the top of his head to the sole of his foot, just beautiful. And wanting everybody to see how regal he appeared and taking on the trappings of the king and yet he was a usurper a rebel someone who would seek to topple his father the rightful ruler from the throne and in satanic fashion to seize power for himself well we're not to look into ourselves and become proud but some people go the other way you know they look in themselves and they become despondent Even with good intention, they say, well, I want to, you know, like the army, be all you can be. I want to be all I can be for the Lord. I want to apprehend that for which I was apprehended, as Philippians 3 says. I want to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and get more like Christ. (coughs) And yet the problem is, we can look within ourselves and we see failure and we see sin. And the more we try to concentrate on what's wrong with us and and faults and the sin which doth so easily beset us, we can become very discouraged. And we can think, well, I'm never going to be like Christ. Now, you notice 
we look into the mirror of 2 Corinthians 3, and it is not so that we can see ourselves. James 1 talks about a mirror that way. You know, that a person hearing the word, says James, and not being a doer of the word, is like a person that looks into a mirror, and they see, not like my brother Benny, who has magnificently combed hair, brilliantly coiffed this morning, and I don't say that by embarrassment, but out of sheer envy, okay? He looks like really way better prepared than I do. I mean, I do comb my hair, but it just comes out like this. It just happens. I'm sorry. And James is saying, you know, you could be that guy that you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, I've got an alfalfa in the back. You know, my hair is sticking up. And so you got to get your moose or gorilla goo or whatever it is that people put in their hair. You know, I don't worry too much about this, obviously. And you have to plaster it down. But James says you could be like that guy. You look in the mirror and then you go away and you don't put anything in your hair and you don't run the comb or brush through it. It's just there. You know, you leave it the way it is. That's like being a hearer of the word and not a doer. Is it good to come to meeting and hear the word of God read? Is it good to hear it expounded? Of course it's good. It's biblical. It's what the Lord wants us to do. But if we go away, not applying what the scripture says, not plugging it into our lives, so to speak, we've missed the entire intention. But when 2 Corinthians 3 talks about the mirror, it's not so that we can look at ourselves and compare it to the standard of the word and say, now, where do I need to change? That's good. That's important. But this is even more fundamental. We look into the mirror and we see Christ. Now, I've heard about some people that have done this, okay? Back in my much younger days, I used to lift weights. I know it doesn't look like it, but, you know, I had a lot of friends who were into weightlifting, so I did a bit whatever I could, you know? And some of them, they would get a picture of some great, ginormous, muscular person like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was in a car accident the other day, but apparently wasn't hurt. But anyway, Arnold doesn't look like Arnold did then, by the way, (laughs) judging by the pictures on Fox News' website. But time waits for no man, as they say. Anyway, they'd hang this picture of Schwarzenegger up there. And there would be Schwarzenegger, you know, bulging biceps. Okay, use your imagination. Bulging biceps, bulging pectoralis muscles, cut abdomen, you know, six-pack abs and all that kind of thing. And there he is with this beautifully sculpted body. And they would stand there and they'd pick up the barbells and they'd be lifting weights and they're looking at Arnold as if the mere looking at Arnold would make them begin to look like Arnold. Now, Muscle and Fitness Magazine never did that for anybody, okay? You can look at the pictures all you want. You won't become like that bodybuilder. Neither Vogue or any of the other ones, you know, ladies for the fashion type style. But this mirror, you look in and you see the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to borrow a line from a fairy tale, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Well, the Lord Jesus, of course, is the fairest, Not Snow White, not Cinderella, not any of the other princesses. Sorry, I realize I'm in Florida, but hopefully I'm far enough away from Orlando to get away with saying that. But when we look at the Lord Jesus, we see someone who inwardly and outwardly is utterly unblemished. There are no imperfections in him. He is absolutely impeccable. There is nothing connected with sin or filth, or defilement, or perversion, or twistedness associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the Lord Jesus Christ is truly, as the Shunammite would say, in the Song of Songs chapter 5, altogether lovely. And when we look at him, when we are steadfastly gazing on him, something wonderful happens. By his Holy Spirit, whom he has given to every believer, he begins to change us to look like himself. Now, that's pretty wonderful, isn't it? You know, sometimes you hear people say, well, uh, there's this mountain, you know, and there's a legend that if you gaze long enough at the face in that mountain, you know, it looks like it has a face on it, you begin to look like that. Or some people say masters begin to look like their pets, you know, so you begin to kind of look like your dog or your dog looks like you or whatever. But this is so much better, isn't it? To look like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice the key thing I said there. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a very big if. And what I mean by believer is the way that the Bible uses the word believer to speak of someone who has saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because even in the Bible, you can see different responses to the Lord Jesus, that there were people who came to the Lord Jesus and they understood that there were things about him that were supernatural. Even his enemies, the Bible tells us, knew that the Lord Jesus did signs and miracles and wonders. They couldn't deny them. Because the Lord Jesus would come, as he did at the Pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5, and he would heal a paralyzed man who had been in that deplorable condition for 38 years. And now he was up and walking around, and they couldn't deny that. Or a man who was congenitally blind, blind from birth, that is to say, whom the Lord told him to go to the Pool of Siloam in John 9 and make clay, and he anointed his eyes, and he came away seeing. The Lord Jesus did these things. It was empirically verifiable. You could go talk to the people who had been healed. You could see the evidence of his supernatural works. And yet these people, even though they did Jesus, even though, excuse me, let me try that again. Even though they knew that Jesus did things that no one else could do, they went away unbelieving. Instead of falling at his feet and saying, my Lord and my God, Instead of saying, God, be propitious to me, a sinner. God, pardon me and forgive me because I'm not right with you. They went away and plotted to murder him in some cases. Strange, isn't it? (coughs) I mean, I'm talking about people who knew Jesus existed. It was pretty obvious. He was standing in front of them. They knew he was a historic personage. They knew the good works he was doing. When they took up stones to stone him, he said, for which good work are you stoning me they said we're not stoning you for a good work we're stoning you for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself god no they knew he was right there they knew his deeds they knew his claims and yet they did not believe on him and it's the same today with people some people come and they hear the word of god and they say oh well that jesus sounds like a nice fellow you know And of course, I believe he was a historic figure the same way that Gautama Buddha was a historic figure and Muhammad was a historic figure and Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and all kinds of other religious leaders in history have been historical figures. But they've never come and dealt with the Lord Jesus Christ personally. And when the Bible talks about a believer, someone who is a disciple of Christ, someone who has been converted, That means they've come to God in their sin and they've repented 
They've changed their mind about themselves. I'm not good. I'm not worthy of salvation. I, in fact, deserve hell. If I got what I deserved, I would be in hell. But the Lord Jesus died on the cross for me. The Lord Jesus bore my sins in his own body on the tree, as 1 Peter 2 tells us. Isaiah 53 says, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. I come as a bankrupt sinner, and I say, Lord, I trust in you that the work you did on the cross is sufficient and able to save. That the blood you shed, that life you gave in sacrifice has paid for my sins. And I'm trusting on you. You are my Lord and God. And I want you to transform me, to save me. However you say that, the Lord Jesus does that. And the wonderful thing about salvation is when you are born again by faith in Christ, when you come to know him, he sends the Holy Spirit to live within you. And as we look at Christ in the mirror of the word of God, we look at him in the scriptures and we consider him. One of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to write on our minds and hearts his law. Now, in the Old Testament, the Jews had a law. It was written externally. 2 Corinthians 3, earlier in the chapter, actually talks about this. We won't read it, but you can read it on your own time. And it talks about that ministry of death that was written on stones. Why was it a ministry of death? Well, the law quite simply said that you had to keep it 100% of the time. If any man lives by the law, he shall do it completely. In fact, James chapter 2 verse 10 tells us that if you've offended in one point, you're guilty of the whole law. You've broken the whole thing. God doesn't grade on a curve. Sin is corrosive, spiritually destructive. Sin taints everything it touches. One sin brought death into the world. Not just physical death, but spiritual death, separation from God. That's why Ephesians 2.1 says about people who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who don't yet know him as their Lord and Savior, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, it says. That's what we are apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we believe on him, we are born again. We are given new life. And instead of having an external law that tells us what to do, but does not empower us to do it, God has thought of something fantastic. You know, God is smarter than Steve Jobs. Do you know that? He's smarter than the was. I shan't explain who he is, but the UIT people know. He's smarter than Bill Gates. He's smarter than Zuckerberg, too. And any of the other great luminaries of the IT age, you know, all these programmers that are taking over the world, right? Because God thought about this idea thousands and thousands of years ago. In fact, God knew it from the very beginning because he knows the end from the beginning. And the Bible says he's the all-wise God. But God wants to take us and write on our minds and hearts his law. That's like writing a new operating system, okay? So you know how it is. I'm sorry for you Mac people. I don't mean to offend, but I'm going to talk in terms of Windows this morning. And for you Linux people, you're too smart for me to talk to you anyway. So I, I shan't uh, go there. But you know, you've got Windows and there've been different editions. I remember, ah, Windows 95. Weren't those the days, you know? And uh, Windows uh, 2000 and Windows XP. And there've been many other Windows I think they're up to Windows 11, maybe, maybe it's 10, I'm not sure, but somewhere around there, 10 or 11. 
anyway, I don't have the new one running on my machine yet. Always like to let them work the bugs out. But you know how that is. That operating system is what tells the computer how to work. So that when I push an A on the keyboard, it's not going to bring up the Greek letter chi. Okay, no one was sitting in the front row, so I could say that, you know, in case I spit. Um, when I push L, it's not going to write O or something. That would be horribly confusing, wouldn't it? You know, it understands when I type in certain things or when I point and click to open or close certain apps and to do certain functions. Because in its internal brain, so to speak, there it's got this operating system telling it what to do. Well, when the Lord saves somebody, he changes us from the inside out. He begins writing on our minds and hearts his law. In other words, we start to actually think like the Lord Jesus. We start to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Now, a lot of people, before they come to the Lord Jesus, they get really worried about this. If I come to the Lord Jesus, you know, does that mean everything in my life is going to have to change? Well, the key thing here is have to. If you think, well, I'm going to come to the Lord Jesus and nothing's going to be different, you've got a mistaken understanding of salvation. Because being born again is just like it sounds. It's a brand new life. So there's a lot of things new. But whereas a person who doesn't know the Lord Jesus, they think, oh, if I come to the Lord Jesus, a lot of things that I like doing now, a lot of things that I've habitually done, I'm not going to do anymore. A lot of people I hang out with maybe won't want to hang out with me anymore if I become one of those Bible-thumping Jesus freaks or however they think of us, you know? But they don't realize when you're born again, you fall in love with the most wonderful person in the universe, with the living God. You have a father who is there for you at all times. You have one who has demonstrated how much he is loved. One of the young ones quoted the verse, God is love, and indeed he is. That is his nature. And you now are linked to this one in love. How do we know he loves us? Well, he gave his son for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And when you come to know the Lord Jesus by faith, suddenly you want to know all about him. You want to spend time with him. Now, those of you who have boyfriends or girlfriends or those of you who are married, you understand this, right? I mean, I didn't care two straws about Iowa. Didn't really think about Iowa almost never, okay? And it was amazing. After I got hooked up with Naomi, <clears throat> let's say when we were engaged, my dad and I noticed a phenomenon. We kept hearing stories about Iowa all the time in the news. And I'm like, can you believe this? And and as I started going around the churches, I kept running into people all over the place from Iowa. And, and it's like a mafia, you know, they're everywhere. I mean, these, these Midwestern mafia, that's what it is, you know. And I before Naomi, I, it just didn't register. I'm sure they were writing plenty of stories about it. I'm sure there were plenty of Iowans in the places I was going, but I was not interested. I didn't have years to hear about Iowa. But as soon as I found out about Naomi, who hailed from Iowa, then I was interested in all things Iowa, you know? Asked about detasseling. Still don't quite sure understand that whole thing, but, you know, cows and farms and we had that in Pennsylvania, too, but generally I just closed the window so I didn't have to deal with the fertilizer smell. Uh, 
but, you know, now interested in things I was never interested in before. And when you come to know the Lord Jesus, it's the same way. It's this new love that you have for the Lord Jesus that makes a lot of things in your old life just not that appealing anymore. Like the hymn writer said, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will become strangely dim in the light of his beauty and grace. And that indeed is true. That's what 2 Corinthians is talking about here. As we see the glory of the Lord in that mirror, verse 18 tells us, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We're going to be like the Lord. And J.N. Darby in his wonderful hymn, And is it so, I shall be like thy son, exalted in this truth, that one day will be conformed to the image of his son. Now, if somebody compared you to a beautiful, physically beautiful, physically handsome person, you'd be flattered most likely, even if you don't particularly care for the person, you know? If they said, oh, you know, your eyes, they remind me of Paul Newman. Well, that's a great compliment, you know? If they say your head, it reminds me of Telly Savalas. Uh, Not so much, sorry. That was Kojak. For those who can remember the 70s, you know, he didn't have any hair. But anyway... I shall make application on that point. But you know, when somebody says, you look like somebody else, somebody that's appealing, somebody that, you know, you think, wow, that's a handsome guy or a beautiful woman, you're complimented. Well, imagine, this is not just resemblance, but he actually wants to, the word Romans 8 uses, is conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, not make us unindividual. In that sense, we are individuals created in the image of God. God has given us personality. We are who we are. And through eternity, we're going to have that identity. So it's not like Eastern mysticism or New Age philosophy where you're absorbed into the great beyond or you become one with the great spirit. Not like pantheism where everything is God. No, you become like Christ and yet at the same time, you're still John or Pete or Barbara or Susie. Uh, apologies to any of those that are here. Any resemblance to any person real or imagined is purely coincidental. Anyway, you know what I mean, I think. That you remain you, only you are now you in Christ. You whom the Lord is making like himself. You whom the Lord will present one day to himself, as Ephesians 5 says of the church collectively, without spot or blemish or any such thing. That's a tremendous plan. No wonder Paul said, look at him. You want to look at that image. You want to be conformed to that image. It is an image of glory. Now, of course, this has lifestyle application. It informed how Paul did his ministry. Therefore, since we have this ministry, chapter 4, verse 1, 2 Corinthians 4, 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, this service, in other words, As we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Now, why would he lose heart? Well, we're going to find out through the chapter that when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and when you serve the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not always easy. There are tribulations and afflictions to be endured in this world for the Lord's sake. But right off the top, he tells us we have received mercy. God has shown us his compassion in our suffering. 
in our brokenness. The Lord has come down to work in us. So we don't lose heart. We're not discouraged, in other words. Verse 2. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now notice how he talks about his work for the Lord here. We've renounced the hidden things of shame, and we're not walking in craftiness. Keep something here and go over, please, to 1 Thessalonians 2. Because this is a point that Paul makes over and over in his epistles. He wants us to know that it's not only important that we serve the Lord, but it is important how we serve the Lord. And he says here in second, sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, 1 Thessalonians 2, 3, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. So, you know, there are people that are teaching out there, and they are what the Lord Jesus called blind leaders of the blind. They themselves have not been saved, and so they are unenlightened. They don't have the illumination of God's Spirit, and they are in error. They are mistaken. Of course, a believer can fall into error as well. That's why we have to study to show ourselves approved, as uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 would tell us. But anyway, he says it didn't come from error or uncleanness. That's been a major problem through church history. From Paul's time right to our own, many, many scandals. I could run off a list of names of preachers that you've heard of, and not just famous ones on the television or that have written books, but people that we've known in some cases personally in uh, New Testament-style assemblies like this one. It's perilously easy to be preaching or serving the Lord in some way and yet be enmeshed in uncleanness to have fallen into a trap of sin and not be extricating yourself and so playing the hypocrite acting like you are what you aren't acting like you're spiritual acting like you love the lord when really you're in sin but he says nor was it in deceit now that's more calculated isn't it if somebody is deceiving there's an intentionality to it they want to trick you And Paul says none of that was what characterized our preaching. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Again, one of the young ones quoted from James chapter 1 this morning about when we are approved, then we shall receive the crown of life. And here we have that word approved. You've passed the test. God says you're genuine. You're not a hypocrite. He's the God who tests the hearts. We speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests the hearts, he says. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. Now, there are preachers that tell people what they want to hear. And in these age, to use a phrase from 2 Timothy 4, where people have itching ears and are heaping up teachers to themselves, that is something that a preacher can fall into, telling people, that they're basically good, telling people that they're very nice, telling people that there's no problem. But that's not the message of the gospel. There's a big problem, the gospel says. We're sinners. We're under the wrath of God till we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a saint, when you come to know the Lord and are a believer by faith in the Lord, how good are you 
in and of yourself, by yourself. Well, your worth is not in yourself. It's not you who is good, but it is you in Christ that gives you a standing before God. We're justified through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, as Romans and Galatians and many other parts of Scripture would attest. But he says here, we didn't do it as a cloak for covetousness either. There are a lot of people that are trying to get things and get material things and money from their preaching. Of course, that gives a bad name to the word of God, doesn't it? God is witness, he says. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. We might have been burdensome, it could be translated. He didn't want to be a weight on them to drag them down. Now, in 2 Corinthians 4, coming back there, he's going to eventually talk about a weight, but it's not the weightiness of his personal gravitas. It's not him as an apostle coming in here and knocking their heads together and saying, now look, you folks, you shape up. You better do it my way or else. No, the weight he's going to talk about is the exceeding and eternal weight of glory that happens for the believer through Christ in the suffering that we endure for him. (coughs) Pardon me. Coming back to 2 Corinthians 4, He says here that they didn't handle the word of God deceitfully. Just like he told the Thessalonians. We weren't trying to trick you. We don't have an ulterior motive. We're not trying to build ourselves up or get a following. He would warn the elders from Ephesus in Acts 20. After my departing, grievous wolves shall enter in, not sparing the flock. And then he says, men from among your own selves will arise, speaking perverse things, seeking to draw disciples after themselves. Paul was never interested in, in making disciples of Paul. He wanted people, as he said in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Don't look at me, as our title suggests this morning. Look at him. Look at the Lord. Now he says here, that in verse 3, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And he talked about the veil that has happened to the Jews in chapter 3, But when you come to Christ, the veil is taken away. Now, in Romans, we are told blindness in part has happened to Israel. And we could say that about a lot of religious people, that religion doesn't lead you to the truth, man's religion at least. Man's religion tells you about what you must do to get to God. The true faith, what God has set forth through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, tells you what God has done to get to you, that you can't do anything that the Lord Jesus died to save you. And all you can do is receive that by faith. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, as Ephesians 2.9 says. Now, he says here that those who don't believe, they, they've got a veil when it comes to the gospel. They don't understand it. And there's really a spiritual war going on behind the scenes. Look at verse 4. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. (coughs) Now, I'm using the New King James this morning. In my translation there, they don't capitalize the word God. In the Greek manuscripts, typically they didn't observe capitals and small letters the way we do. They were either all small or all caps normally. And uh, in any case, I think the translators have done a good job here in making that a lowercase g, because we're not talking about the true God when we talk about the God of this age, or your translation may say the God of this world. We are talking about Satan. Now, is Satan a God? Well, 
technically no. Okay, when we talk about God, there's only one God. And the Bible says that in the Old Testament, for example, the famous Shema, the Jews, that they were to confess. You can read it in Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Or is it chapter 5? But anyway, I'll look it up later. Sorry about that. 5 or 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And they confess that oneness of God. There's one God. He says in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He's number one. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2 tells us. So Satan's not really a God, but the way people respond to him, he might as well be as far as this world's concerned. In other words, they follow him as their authority source. They follow him as one whom they think they're doing service to. They give allegiance to him. Now, most people don't do it in an open way. Satan doesn't tell them, you know, I'm the devil. I want you to follow me. And they say, oh, great, I'll follow you. Anton Xander LaVey may have done that. Uh, Alistair Crowley may have done that. But most people don't do that. Most people, when they follow the God of this age, they're going to a church that they think is Christian. Or they're going to a synagogue that they think is following God's word. Or they go to some other kind of temple or mosque or whatever the place is, and they think they're serving God. And really, they're serving Satan. Because if you're not going to worship the true and living God, you know what you're going to be? You're going to be an idolater. You say, well, what if I'm an atheist? What if I say there is no God? You know, atheists are some of the biggest idolaters of all. Because you listen to them talk, and uh, where did everything come from? (laughs) Well, their God is the Big Bang. Their God is evolution, capital E. And when you ask, well, why does this phenomenon happen in nature? Why does an animal behave this way? Well, you know, evolution uh, taught it to do this, or evolution makes it do this. or Oh, evolution does it, as if evolution is a person, right? And they're really not any more sophisticated than the ancient Greeks and Romans and Babylonians and other people before them who deified the forces of nature. So there is a God of this age because men worship him men follow him as if he is god but again he is a pretender a usurper a fake god you've heard of fake news well this is a fake god it was a fake gospel and he's blinded uh, those who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of christ who's the image of god should shine on them so here's this spiritual warfare and even though paul is sincere that is he's preaching For all he's worth, he's not being hypocritical. He doesn't have some sinister ulterior motive. He's not insidious in his intentions. Nonetheless, they're not getting it. Why is the gospel veiled to them? Well, there's a spiritual war going on for their mind. People don't realize this. They think, you know, I'm smart enough to figure out the truth. No, you aren't. You need somebody to tell you the truth. Now, we know that. I don't know who the smartest guy or gal in the room here is this morning. But regardless of your IQ, there was a time when you were dumber than a rock, okay? And when you had to be taught everything, right? You had to be taught mama, dada. You had to be taught stick this in your mouth and eat it, you know, whatever it was. It's good, that gross-looking baby food and all that. You had to be taught all kinds of things. 
You, you spent the formative years of your life, and so did I, listening to authorities, listening to people around you, telling you one plus one is two, two plus two is four, three plus two is five, or whatever, you know, telling you all kinds of things. And yes, as you get older, your brain develops and you begin to discern. You're able to weigh things and compare things and decide some things about it. But at the end of the day, you always have to be reliant on information that somebody else is giving you. So people that reject the Bible and say, well, I can figure out the truth, they're going to go to some other source. They're going to go to scientists or they're going to go to the Vedic writings of the Hindus, or they're going to go to the Quran of Islam, or they're going to go to the Book of Mormon, or they're going to go to even their personal opinions. And what are our opinions formed by? They're formed by the music we listen to. They're formed by the things we watch, the things we read, and the people that are around us, our friends and our peer group. You're going to receive information from somebody, and you're going to follow somebody, okay? So I'll just put it this way. Make sure you're on the right side of that search for truth by coming to the one who is the truth. And Jesus Christ, our Lord, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me, John 14, 6. So we come to the word of the God of truth. The Lord Jesus said, sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth, in John 17, 17. And that's what dispels the darkness. That's what shines the glory through. It shows us the beauty of the Lord. Now notice verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Now notice, he says, we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ Jesus. Does that mean he never ever mentions himself? Well, no. We have plenty of examples. In Acts, for example, he gives his testimony uh, at least three different times, I think. He talks about how the Lord saved him. In Galatians 1, he talks about what his life was like before he was saved, before he knew the Lord. He pulls out examples from his own life. So there's clearly a place for personal experience with the Lord and for testifying to what the Lord has done for you. But beware of preachers who the thing you're left with when they're done is, wow, wasn't he great? Wasn't he dynamic? Wasn't he interesting? You know, not boring like some of those guys you know, practically put me to sleep on, on Sunday morning. I mean, think of just how he used words or his gestures or he could jump up on a table or he could do this or that. You know, look how impressive that guy is. If we've done that, we've missed the whole lesson of John the Baptist. He must increase. I must decrease. Don't look at me. Look at him. And Paul was very much about that. He wasn't saying, now let me tell you about what I've learned and, and how great a person I am because that's how the gurus of this world are, right? You'll always find sages and you'll find clerics of one sort or another pointing you to them. Look at me and if you try real hard and are very diligent, someday you can be like me. No, Paul, when he would talk about himself, he would say, I was the chief of sinners. Look at Christ. And if you look at me, look at the things that Christ has done in my life. Look at how Christ is working through me. Look at how it's Christ who's given me the gifts, not me. I'm just a gift. Uh, I'm not 
anything of myself. Just like John the Baptist would say, I'm a voice, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, your slaves is the word there, for Jesus' sake. (coughs) So his life was one of service, one of taking the low place, one of serving God's people as if he were their slave for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he uses this language here, it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And later in this section of 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 17, he's going to talk about a new creation. If anyone be in Christ, there's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, 517 will tell us. And here he tells us, it's just like back there in Genesis, when God said, let there be light, and there was light, the light has shone. John 1, earlier than the passage our brother read to us, says that, and the, um, sorry, let me get it here, that the, um, in him was light, and the light was the life of men, is what it says there. Sorry, in him, I had it backwards. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's getting near the end here, you can tell the batteries are starting to run dry. So look at your Bible extra carefully in the next few minutes, okay? In him was life, and the life was the light of men, says John 1.4. This is the one, the creator God who gives light also does this spiritually. The one who gave us physical life gives spiritual life. It's by believing on his son that the darkness is dispelled. Now, what about the servants who are preaching this message? Verse 7 We have this treasure in earthen vessels. For you CCM people, jars of clay. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. What's that remind us of? It reminds us of Judges 7. You know, the 300. No, not Leonidas and the Spartans, but the greater 300. Gideon and the 300 that went out to battle. And how did they go out to battle? They had those clay vessels with the lamps inside. And you remember for the battle technique to be used they were attacking at night they had to break those vessels for the light to shine that's an apt metaphor for the preacher of the lord jesus christ because he begins to talk about the sufferings i don't want you to look at the vessel and think the vessel is anything the vessel is just an earthen vessel it's a common pot that could be used for any sort of thing But he says, we are hard-pressed on every side, verse 8, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Now there's a false gospel out there today that says you shouldn't suffer. And if you're suffering, it's because God is displeased with you. Well, suffering, as you'll hear this afternoon, is a very complicated subject. Uh, Hopefully my message about it won't be complicated. Pray. But anyway, it of course has different functions and different reasons depending on the context. And yes, God does chasten. God does discipline his children. So sometimes he lets something come into our lives and uses it to make us more dependent on him, 
or to correct us from something we're doing wrong or maybe to keep us from something we might do wrong. And God uses it in a multitude of ways. (coughs) But here he says, he's using suffering in our lives to demonstrate the dying of Jesus. So you may understand the life of the Lord Jesus as well. Because you remember the Lord Jesus in this world did not live for this world. If he was living for this world, he would have died a most disappointed man, wouldn't he? Because he only lived to be about 33 years old. And yet the Lord Jesus was living a life (coughs) where day after day he was not pleasing himself. Romans 15 says that. Christ pleased not himself. Day after day he was dying to self and living to God. Now again, there was no flesh in the Lord Jesus, no sin within him that he had to deny like we do. But even at that level of being a human being, he was dependent on God the Father. He was always obedient unto him, even to the point of the death of the cross. And in his service and following of the Father, (coughs) that led the Lord Jesus eventually to the death of the cross. And if we follow the Lord Jesus, it's going to lead us through death too. But it doesn't stop there. That's the wonderful thing. Now let's jump ahead because I have one minute left. Verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. So Christians aren't people that pretend we don't have problems, we don't suffer. He could say, look at our bodies, you know. Not only are they getting old and degenerating because of entropy in the universe, but, (coughs) pardon me, but we're also beaten, we're persecuted. We've suffered all these things that he spoke about earlier. But he says, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, you listen to a man who's been beaten multiple times, who's been put in the worst kinds of prisons imaginable multiple times, who's been shipwrecked multiple times, who's been in all kinds of fears and perils, whose life has been one unremitting struggle for the sake of Christ and for the building of the church. And he calls it our light affliction. Now, how can you say that? How can someone call all that suffering a light affliction? Well, because he's looking to the reward. He says it's working a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, the things of this world, they don't have weight. And so Hebrews 12 says they're going to be shaken. But that same passage says we've come to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're coming to one who gives a weight of glory. Now, whatever we suffer in this world, if we're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, you know, I'm just working this to add more and more glory. More and more glory to him for the way he is forming the body. More and more crowns for us to cast at his feet, but also rewards at his judgment seat that we can thank God for when we get home to heaven. And the Lord uses suffering for all these purposes. So with that in mind, we don't look to other people. We don't look even to Paul as gifted and as noble as he was in many respects. We look to the Lord Jesus. Look at him. And that's the difference. That's how you can endure suffering. 
That's how you can go through trials. That's how you can have difficulties in your life and not despair, not lose heart. Look to him. Father, we're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do pray that he's honored and glorified by what is said here, that any error would be forgotten and the truth of God would be upheld in people's minds and hearts. And above all, we pray for each of us that we draw nearer to him even this day and become more like him for his glory. We pray it in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.